0: Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we're continuing to support thought leadership and education. Today's podcast is with Andy Hargraves, a wonderful colleague and friend who I've known for the better part of three decades. And yet, when I read his memoir, I was surprised to learn more about this world-renowned educator. In this episode, Andy shares details of his personal story and reflects on the education system and society in which he was raised. We learn about his challenges and successes growing up and how they've shaped his research and professional contributions. Andy, it's great to have you here.
1: Welcome. Hi, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to connect virtually even though we're only a couple of miles away from each other.
0: That's right. For the audience, you don't realize, but Andy and I are actually both living in Ottawa, Canada now. And uh, we first ran into each other in Toronto, partly through my work in a school district and Andy doing uh, great work in the education sector. And then eventually I did my doctorate at the institution where Andy was. And Andy was a prof for one of my classes, so we have known each other for a long time. We uh, have indeed. Andy, you've been incredibly uh, instrumental in my thinking as a leader in education and helped me along the way, so thanks for that.
1: You're welcome. Let's go. Let's see uh, what this strange book uh, might have to offer that would be of interest and value for uh, the leaders that you work with.
0: I know it will be. Yeah, Andy has written an incredible book that is a memoir. And Andy, when you told me that you were doing that, I thought, well, first of all, I think you're way too young to be writing a memoir, because I know there's going to be all sorts of other passages that uh, you'll want to share with the world. On the other hand, I thought, yeah, a memoir, because you've had an interesting journey. And what I found really interesting, Andy, is that even though I've known you for so long and certainly have a friendship and a collegiality with you... Reading the book, I felt like I got a better indication of who you are and where you came from. Why did you write the book, Andy? What was your inspiration?
1: That's the question that many people ask. and I think people ask that of pretty much all authors, whether they're writing nonfiction or fiction, what motivated them to write the thing that they're writing. Mm-hmm. And there's never one simple answer, but there are two or three things I think are relevant. One is I come from a background like many of your listeners, which is not at on one level especially remarkable. You know, I don't come from royalty. I'm not a rock star. I'm not an athlete. Well, uh, you're
0: a bit of a rock star in the education sector. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I'm not a musical rock star, though I could have been, actually, if you <laughs> if you read the book. You know, my memoir, I think my, many people's lives, is not one of these reality TV sorts of unbelievable memoirs of lives that people have had overcoming extraordinary adversity. So if you think of J d Vance 's Hillbilly Elegy. You wonder how he ever survived. never mind how he got on to university at Yale. so I think, like lots of people i didn 't think i 'd had an especially remarkable life, just a life of lots of people like me that wasn 't particularly worth writing home about. But then, in about seven years ago, uh, my mum, who was ninety three really was in her last days. She'd uh, had enough of life, to be honest. She had a very good life till about 90, not so good the last three years. And she was having her last days in hospital. She was unconscious. We had no idea whether she could hear anything. She wasn't taking any fluids, anything like that. And in terms of thinking, because I am a problem solver, and even in the most dire situations, you think, well, here am I, you know, what can I usefully do? And I felt there were two things I could use, even though when it seemed like you could do nothing. One was simply to be there and just be present and use it as a time to think and reflect about her and, her life, the life of people like me. And then I thought, well, I'm a writer, you know, so let's try writing something. So I started to write it down and it took a shape. And I've been thinking about this for a few days before. I sent it off to the local newspaper, which would be equivalent to, I don't know, the Toronto Star, for example, in terms right. of its reach. And it was about her and really her and the people like her. Just working class woman who'd been born two years after the first world war, grew up during the depression, got married during wartime, raised her children during austerity and then just realized they were getting on their feet uh, found herself as a widow at the age of 43 raising three boys alone with three jobs then finding it too much going on welfare sort of struggling through that and in one way it's remarkable in another it's it's totally unremarkable it's like many people like her but i put all this down and the local newspaper loved it they asked for some pictures and then it was just a day or two before she died and i leaned over her and said, "Mom, you know, I've got something to tell you. I've written something about your life. And the Lancashire Telegraph, which she used to get delivered every day, they're going to publish this with photographs all about you, Mom." I love that. And then I just said, here's how it starts. And I got two sentences in. And uh, she'd had no fluid in like 10 days at all. And and then this tear just came down her cheek. And it's a very moving moment, obviously, but as I reflected on it, I thought, well, there's something here, you know, there's something Mm -hmm. here. And I got lots of letters back, and lots of letters were from people about their lives. And I thought, so these lives are worth writing about, not just my life, but these lives are worth writing about. And then I started, and it, it became a kind of hobby for a while. And it it was a bit rambling and, you know, included everything in it but the kitchen sink. But the more I got into it, the more I discovered that it was a narrative of something. So I stopped it at age 22, otherwise Mm -hmm. it would have gone on. But it really became a narrative about the struggle. So not about the glory or the heroism of social mobility, but about the struggle for social mobility.
0: What I really appreciated about it, Andy, is that it is very relatable. You do a great job of combining your story of your family and the family dynamics and the different experiences and the different members in the family with kind of a historical piece where you're talking about the education system in the UK at the time and how it was structured mm. and how it impacted you and your brothers very differently. Mm. And then kind of the whole socioeconomic piece where what does it feel like to be moving either up or down that socioeconomic level?
1: Up, down, up, down and apart. I think exactly. that, that, That's a big thing about when you lift people out and you move them somewhere else. The struggle then becomes the up, the down, and the apart that you're sort of working with.
0: Andy, the audience that listens to this is typically school district ministry people in different countries, typically leaders, superintendents, but lots of teachers and early childhood educators, so I think we can all relate to your book. You talk about your three brothers' experiences in the UK system at the time as almost a reflection of the divisions within that or the hierarchy yeah. within the UK system. Yeah. Tell us about the experiences of you and your brothers and how they were different and the different pathways that they were yeah. almost forced into at a very young age.
1: So, I'm one of three brothers and the youngest of three brothers. My eldest brother's still alive. My middle brother sadly passed away mm-hmm. two to three years ago, both living in Canada, actually, same as me. And one of the novels that I most enjoyed reading in the last few years is by the Canadian author Alistair MacLeod. Mm. And it's called No Great Mischief. And it's, it's about three brothers out east in the east of uh, Canada. And their parents, when they're young, their parents fall through the ice. And so they lose both their parents. The oldest brothers try to work the farm, and the youngest brother lives in a lighthouse with his grandparents, and he's the lucky one, strangely, even though I lived in a lighthouse, because the eldest ones who have this working-class life with not much behind them then fall into all kinds of problems and difficulties, and the book is about You know, the youngest brother who goes on, gets educated, becomes an orthodontist, somehow trying to connect with his older brothers, one who's become an alcoholic. And, And there are scenes in the book of when he's passing the migrant laborers who come up from Mexico and is wondering what their life is like compared to his life. It's a beautiful book, actually, about the fates that unite us and separate us in different ways.
0: Sounds very parallel to your experience with your brothers. It has some affinities with
1: it, which is obviously, presumably, why the book meant so much to me. So at age 11 in England, in the 1950s and 60s and beyond, there was a test. It was called the 11 Plus. And that test, which was in uh, literacy, mathematics, and visual-spatial reasoning, was used uh, pretty much to decide your whole life. In fact, even before that, the the book recalls a vocabulary test, I still remembered, that determined which stream I went into at age seven, and I had old class class lists of those kids. I went into the A stream, and most of the kids in the A stream passed the 11 plus, went on to grammar school. Quite a lot of them went on to university, higher education, professions, teachers, many of them. And none of the B-stream went on to grammar school or university or higher education. And that was all decided at age seven as the Jesuits mm-hmm. say, you know, give me a child at seven and I, I will show you the, well they said, I will show you the man because they're Jesuits. <laughs> and so I, I took the test at, at 11. Apparently it caused me lots of anxiety, They even though I wasn't aware of it. I kind of stopped going out, stopped playing out. I was taking off to the doctors a lot. So they thought I had like leukemia, blood problems, but it was just, there was this enormous implicit pressure because everybody knew your life depended on it. You know, My mum and dad would say, like many parents said, don't worry if you don't pass, it's not the end of the world, which meant do worry if you don't pass, it is the end of the world. So I passed the test because I was a bright kid, i went off to grammar school and everything that followed from that in part this is why i'm here now talking to you and my two middle brothers didn't my middle brother colin who passed away a couple of years ago he He was what's called borderline, so he went to a thing called a technical school. They did away with them a couple of years later. There were very few technical schools. They were really for people who sort of went into trades or apprenticeships or clerical work, banks, offices, and so on. My eldest brother, Peter, I was living in Vancouver now and has read this uh, memoir and given me great feedback, actually. and I mean intellectual feedback, not just a memorabilia kind of feedback. So in the middle of the test, Peter was accused of cheating because he went to borrow an eraser off another kid. And if anything, I'm very stubborn, and he is even more stubborn than I am. We've been writing to each other saying, although we're very different, this is a common feature that we have. So he walked out of the test in disgust. Never confessed this to my mum until she was in her 80s. Uh, so he went to vocational school, but vocational school in England then was for 80% of the kids. And so I went across the country to university. My brothers went down to working factories at the bottom of the hill. They both became self-educated in adult life, as you could then, were able to progress to some degree. But there was a time, I think, in my fifties that I talk about in the book when he and I were fixing, like, self-assembly furniture where you always end up with two screws when you've put the, the thing together. <laughs> yes, we've all and, done that. And I said to him, Pete, you know, you're so lucky with this, which is, you seem able to do this, I'm hopeless at this. You know, you have such a talent for it. And then it was quite irritated. He said, no, I don't have any talent for this whatsoever. My talent is in military history, it's in art. It's in opera, He used to sing amateur opera, but I couldn't do any of this because my school wouldn't let me. All it would let me do was the skills that prepared me to work in factories, and that's what I had to use.
0: It's funny, Andy, because, you know, over the years, you and I have had huge debates about large-scale assessment. You know, we've been on the other side of the fence with that, and that's that's been fun about, uh, one of the things that's been fun about our relationship. But it was after the reading the book that I realized why you have such strong feelings against that large-scale assessment like a test that's done with very high stakes at very young inappropriate ages that literally determines the life outcomes for students and the reason why i'm on the other side of that is because i didn't grow up with any of that there wasn't large-scale assessment and we were able in ontario to create what i would call large scale assessment that helps us receive information at the system level, which helps us think about how we're going to allocate resources as opposed to trying to interpret those on an individual basis that has an outcome for an individual child. And so it made more sense to me our conversations over the years after reading your experience and your family's experience, you had an opportunity to see with the three brothers had completely different life outcomes based or life pathways, perhaps more appropriately, life pathways based on what happened in a test at such an early age. And I hope that when people read that book, it will remind them of large-scale assessment can be such a dangerous thing in a system and how, particularly at this point in time, that we use this opportunity to say, that's not what should be happening in education systems anywhere.
1: Well, you know, I have understood and respected the alternate point of view about accountability and uh, system data. I've just been on a phone call before this podcast in relation to another country that has very little system data, and especially during COVID-19, it's hard to know what's going on there. So I really do understand the alternate argument, and so I think our challenge should be, how can we have that data in ways that don't have serious negative consequences on children's lives especially the most vulnerable and i think the good thing in the last two or three years is that some people's need for accountability and system management was so great they denied the problems that there were for children particularly vulnerable children and i think we're past that now and we understand the two truths that are both important and Absolutely. I think what will get us out of this is technology. I think technology is on the cusp of transforming how we use and how we think about assessments so that it is both immediately available to the teacher and the child and useful and can provide us with some kind of system level data that doesn't corrupt what we do with our students.
0: I agree 100%. And I think we've come such a long way in broadening what we need to know about what's happening in an education system yeah. and broadening what we need to know about how a child is doing, both from a well being standpoint and from an academic growth standpoint. Yeah. And so that broadening is really helpful. And, you know, your book, I think, really gives an illustration of when it's wrong this is what it can look like and it has very different impacts on different children and so it's a great reminder of that one of the things that you talk about you have a great story about miss hindle and you know what i was thinking as i was reading it was that irrespective of the structure the school systems that we are brought up in pedagogy and relationships make such a difference and that's universal and many of us can think back to a teacher that made a difference. And you did a good job of not just describing who Ms. Hindle is and was, but you described the type of learning that made a difference in the classroom. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So my book is about the experiences so of probably many of us. It's a book about inspiring teachers and particularly a couple of them and what a huge difference they can make in children's lives and about execrable teachers who um, <laughs> who brought out the worst in me, actually, in terms of defiance, but also made me search for workarounds where I could still succeed despite my teachers, many of them in high school. So that will explain to you why I've always had a drive to transform our high schools into more inclusive, humanistic. Mm-hmm. institutions as well as uh, grades factories. Um, Mary Hindle was in some ways typical over time and in some ways a bit ahead of it. She was my teacher in uh, the last year in primary school, elementary school in North America, 11 years old. Not all my primary school teachers were like her. We had uh, my childhood sweetheart, uh, who's in the book wrote to me actually with a message line <laughs> How saying, fun. Saying return of the childhood sweetheart, and so shared some interesting memories of her own about and a bit of cross validation about the teachers we had. In North America, the heyday of child centered education, what we would now call whole child education, was probably the 1920s. So, anybody who's been to grad school know that the heyday of progressivism was the project method and John Dewey and all that in the 1920s. And to some extent, that was true in England also. But when there was an attempt to revive it and renew it in the 1960s and 70s, the results were very spotty in North America. In Canada, it was the whole Dennis report right. uh, that people might remember in America tried to innovate in response to Sputnik in the late 50s, but all the research says that the results were at best uneven and mainly very disappointing in terms of implementation. England did rather better, actually, and it had some pioneering leaders at school district level, one of whom was a man called Sir Alec Clegg, whose work I studied as part of my PhD dissertation, how he really expanded this philosophy through to middle schools, kids who were age 12 and 13, not just 11. So there was a sort of movement and it was throughout the system and it was embraced by the inspectors. So the inspectors were really bearers of this policy. And when you look at inspection reports of my school for that period, they talk about the beauty of the nature table, about the importance of creative writing and its links to children's interests and to the natural world and environment around them so i'm not just going off my memories but they're recorded in the inspection reports of the school at the time and the philosophy that the inspectors really supported i contrast by the way that with inspection reports from the early 2000s which talked about how many children were at the level of proficiency required and how organized the teaching was or wasn't. So a real change in the zeitgeist. And um, and Mary Hindle was ahead of even what was the norm for the time, in that uh, she would have children working in groups. She'd really develop expressive music, drama, dancing for boys as well as for girls, which is one of the things, one of the only things she actually remembered about me. And uh, she would have newspapers in the class that children would write. She recalls children writing letters to the editor, letters to her. I edited the travel section. I'd never been anywhere, but I traveled a lot in my head. So that explains why, you know, I have a kind of traveling man kind of life now when we don't have things like a pandemic. And I think the beauty of her was she understood the whole child. So she understood that. I had a lot about me. You know, I was very enthusiastic. I was very smart. I was very chatty, but also understood that I had some flaws. So now now we would say I was very ADHD. I was very kind of up and about all the time. Bit mouthy, bit kind of smart aleck remarks. Uh, Very disorganized. Could never remember to bring books and equipment to class. And, you know, my parents thought I did this to be awkward, but she just understood it was who I was and made a lot of allowances, but also took 10 percent off the top, which is what great teachers do. They give you a bit of rope, but don't let you hang yourself with it or indeed the other kids. And that's what great teachers are, I think, for all of us.
0: When I was reading that, I was thinking about the different parts, as you described her, you know, the kinds of things that we know that great teachers now Mm. do. You know, we talk about teachers that are able to get to know each of their children in their class or each of their students and know something about their identity and what makes them tick you talked about the kind of pedagogy that we would call open pedagogy now, collaborative learning and and students being able to have some agency in their learning. She kind of epitomized before her time, perhaps, the kinds of things that we talk about, real excellent teachers and excellence in education. And she kind of embodied that. And the only thing that I was thinking as I finished reading that was that at that time, even though there were policies, It was more an individual teacher that would choose to be like that and others that would choose not to be like that. And I think one of the areas that we've come a long way with is the idea of professional learning communities, where instead of one teacher doing that by themselves, we allow, we facilitate, we encourage teachers to be able to be working together and to be sharing those practices and creating a culture within a school that embodies those types of practices.
1: Absolutely. And and so Mary Hindle, who I'm thrilled to be able to say when my old school had a new building, laid the foundation stone for the new building with me, which is one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me in my life because she inspired me to move into education really. But it was even more wonderful for her. So you know it's a bit of an extreme example, but if you've had a fantastic teacher in your life, let them know that in some way or other before it's too late. So uh, you're absolutely right, Jennifer. She was also pretty rigorous. You know, we did do our times tables. We had structure, we had a focus as well as the exploration. and. It wasn't either or, it was both and. And we shouldn't uh, leave it to chance whether kids are lucky if and when they get such a teacher and unlucky if and when they don't. And, And professional learning communities are important everywhere, but they're most important in secondary school because in high school, no teacher sees enough of the child to understand all of them. Understanding the whole child takes the whole school. To do that, it's an organizational question as much as an individual question. So, the place where professional learning communities really matter is even more so in secondary school than it is in elementary school.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And uh, certainly in my experience, where you saw professional learning communities happening in secondary schools, the impact on the type of instruction when you walked into those schools, you could see similar approaches as you walked from the science Mm -hmm. department into the math department, into the arts department, Mm -hmm. that you could see common pedagogical practices. Mm -hmm. That's where it was a game changer for students. One of the themes that you talk about, and it's right in your title, is the concept of social mobility, which I think is kind of your sociologist side compared to your educator side, because oh. of course your academic background, you have a foot in in both of those camps. You talk about social mobility, and I love the comment. There's a quote from your son that said that he said to you you're too smart for ordinary people and too ordinary for smart people and i thought that was just such a great comment because it gets at this idea of the imposter syndrome and i think you know a lot of us experience that where we get into an environment you think wow i shouldn't be here i haven't (laughs) earned my stripes i'm not at this level and you talk about those struggles all the way through including now Tell me about your son's comment and how you've lived that.
1: Well, my son, how I love to bits, he said that when he was about 17. He's now a law professor in uh, Hong Kong, actually specializes in privacy law. And even when he said it, I thought uh, it took me back a bit. And I thought, well, Stuart, you've hit the nail on the head there. You've nailed really. it. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, it didn't mean that ordinary people weren't smart. It was really talking about a particular way of being smart absolutely, and, and how in some ways that, that separated you from the people around you, even when you didn't mean it to. And, and the opposite, of course, that when I'm with very smart people, I feel I don't quite fit. I wonder why I'm really there. Just one small example in the book, when a few years ago, I got a phone call from Sweden and they kept phoning. And, and this was the vice president and I thought well, well what do they want you know they probably just want a reference for somebody a, so eventually my assistant said you know you really have to answer this call they insist they can't just talk to me and say you know they want a reference they have to talk to you so I was in the middle of a meeting with like 10 people and I, I was answering on the phone I, I'm afraid I was I was a bit irritable and, and I said well what is it you know what, what do you want and they said well We're going to offer you something, but before we offer it you, we need to know that you'll accept it. I said, so what is it? This is the University of Uppsala, which is the oldest university in Scandinavia. It's where Linnaeus invented the classification system of uh, plants and animals. And has a garden there actually. And they said, well, we want to offer you an honorary doctorate. So there was a bit of a silence and all these people in the room. And so my first response was, I said, look, I I said, I think that's lovely, but there's something I need to tell you, which is in my university here, and most of the universities I know, there are only two reasons you get an honorary doctorate. One is that you've either given money to the university, which you're probably aware I haven't, or you're about to give money to the university, (laughs) in, in which case you're probably going to be a bit disappointed and they said no 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 that this is not how it works here we do it purely on on, on merit and so on so i said well that's great I, I said could could you just give me a sense of like anybody else you've offered this honorary doctorate to and they said well yes in the last few years we've given them to nelson mandela uh, david Andrew, <laughs> desmond tutu jane goodall i said okay i'll have it so, yes, so, yes, please. So I was quite pleased, and I said I'd accept it, and I put the phone down and finished my meeting, and and then afterwards I had this second guessing, this feeling uh, of panic rising in me and, 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 and I have a friend who's who is one for practical jokes, and I thought he's playing a practical joke on me, and he's got a female friend of his because the vice president was a woman to put on like a Swedish accent, not like the chef from the Muppets. To, I spent ten days trying to check out whether, in fact, this was all just a joke, but it wasn't and you know it was an honorary doctorate and, and so when I'm invited on a panel, I often wonder it's because somebody died or they just want this British guy to show up with a British accent and make it a bit more international and so there's still always that a, a kind of lack of confidence sometimes which people who don't know me very well will think is bizarre you know i advise national governments i work with the world bank I, you know i've had a lot of awards uh, why on earth would there be this kind of inner you know, lack of confidence but there is uh, a literature which shows that people who've been upwardly mobile when they become academics even when they're presidents of the university they feel like they don't belong in their own university because there's things about them that don't quite fit. The music they like isn't typical of the music that other people like. They might swear a bit here and there in meetings when they let their guard down, which other people won't do. In in a gathering, I'm more likely to talk to the person serving at the bar or the waiting staff or I'm as likely to talk to them as I am to talk to a donor who, you know, might be able to give a, a million dollars or two because, because, uh, you know, these are people. My mother cleaned people's houses. She worked in local shops. Everybody has dignity. When I go into the toilets in an airport, I will try to recognize the people who are cleaning that just to pass a few words or to thank them because they're human beings too and they have dignity but sometimes the price of that is i won't talk enough to the really important person who i'm supposed to be talking to and in a way i'm not ashamed of that and i try and encourage other people to do that as well but in canada there's a researcher at the university of western ontario who i've been in touch with wolfgang lehman who studies what happens to working class kids when they get to university, they drop out more than other kids. They mm. often feel like they don't completely belong. When they go home, their parents start to think they've got above themselves mm. and because they have knowledge now. So it never stops. You know, they struggle in university, they struggle at home. And I lived on one side of town, went to school on the other side of town. Eventually, I was the only kid on my side of town. So it got me into a couple of fights that I talk about in the book because I became a bit of a target and my brothers were no longer around to watch my back for it. And all through my academic life, I've spent a lot of time trying to bring things together that other people keep apart. I study middle schools, which is about primary schools and secondary schools, and the transition years, which sums it all up, adolescence, things that other people put apart, middle schools tried somehow to bring together. I try to bring perspectives together, like big picture perspectives and micro perspectives that other people keep apart. Through the book, I'm really trying to bring together the discourse of class and sometimes white working class with discourses of other kinds of marginalization that have to do with racism and other kinds of oppression. and People sometimes set these against each other, but I think all of us who struggle have a narrative that should bring us together. So it's not surprising that when you look at my work, I'm, uh, in a way I'm trying to heal myself by bringing together the parts of my existence Mm. that the system is constantly trying to push apart but that as a human being you're constantly trying to bring together and i think there's a lot we can do in schools that can put an end to that in moving up and on we shouldn't have to leave behind who we are whether that's the class we come from or the country we immigrated from, and the culture that is part of us. We should be able to hold these two things together.
0: As I was reading the book, Andy, there was a couple of things that came to mind that I think the readers will feel as well. First of all, you describing your sense of insecurity sometimes and feeling that you don't quite belong and maybe not quite good enough, I think we all have that regardless of our circumstances. And I think it's reassuring. We think of you as being highly accomplished, et cetera. And if you have those feelings, it's normal for everyone to have those feelings, especially as we go through life and jump into different situations where we're not from that community. That was the first thing that I thought of. The second thing is this idea of equity in education. And I think we are being more purposeful now of thinking about how do we honor the child or the student's identity and be able to allow them and encourage them to hold on to that identity while experiencing the joys of all sorts of things as they go through their education and the education system and onto life. I think we're doing a better job with that.
1: I totally agree with that. And I think uh, in Canada, especially, but not only in Canada, we, over the last uh, seven years or so, we've really worked hard to treat equity as a question of inclusion, of identity. Mm -hmm. and I I think we've done that with a range of groups and identities. I think uh, we're working hard to do that with Indigenous communities, uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit. I think we were a bit slower to do that with LGBTQ2 in Canada and elsewhere, but we're getting better at that now. I think what we've worked harder to do that with immigrant uh, communities. So to understand that if you come to Canada from India, uh, Pakistan, Brazil, it's okay to be half Canadian, but because it's a both and. So you'll go back and forwards to Brazil. The internet, of course, makes this more possible now. Even for me as a British Canadian, that, you know, I can follow my soccer team back in Britain. I can be both and I can be proud to be both. I think where we're not there yet in Canada, the US, and the country of my upbringing, Brexit Britain, is we're not yet addressing that in socioeconomic terms and in social class terms. I think we've thought of being working class as being poor. So we equate it with poverty. And then it becomes the only identity if we equate working class with poverty that you have to leave behind in order to move on, you want to leave poverty behind in order to be successful. And we have a wonderful Museum of Human Rights in Canada, in Manitoba, in Winnipeg, and there's an entire floor that deals with issues of immigration and uh, genocide and, and race, but there is also a whole floor devoted to the history of labor and to the Gdansk shipyards in Poland, where labor was a huge part of bringing about the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So we don't talk about working class identity as a source of pride, as something that has a tradition that is honorable, whether you're poor or whether you're working in the auto factories in Windsor or Detroit and so we need to bring this back I think into our schools that being working class is an identity too and of course that's partly white working class but we know that our migrant farm laborers are working class many of the people who've been most affected by COVID-19 and been most vulnerable Often people of color are also working class, and I think we've been too hasty to try and make everybody think they're middle class without honoring the dignity of people who've been working class. Michelle Obama now proudly talks about her working class upbringing. We've got quite good at engaging with these other identities, but we've lost a bit the dignity of working class identity.
0: I think it's a great uh, comment on equity and identity and the kinds of things that we're trying to do in education systems now. And um, for the listeners right now, Andy, that's a great way to end this podcast. The kinds of things that, you know, when you read a book like yours, it's a memoir. It gives you all sorts of thoughts. Well, what can education be? What can we be doing in education to provide for the successes that you've had and to make sure that others have all sorts of success and pride in their background and their identity and pride moving forward.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I hope people enjoy reading this and I'm grateful that you said uh, it's a good read. The forward is by Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland. And I was delighted because she loves literature, so she's not interested in just the argument, but she likes the book as literature, and and I hope people enjoy it for the messages that it has, but I also hope that they enjoy it because they think it's a good read, and the pages pass quickly, and it will take them out of their COVID life and perhaps back to themselves a bit and to the selves of the kids that they teach.
0: I had a great read. I brought it on a little vacation that I was on and uh, it felt great to escape and to learn a little bit more about my friend and what's made you into a a great guy that I really enjoy working with. So thank you, Andy. And uh, we will look forward to seeing what happens for your next
1: steps. Thanks, Jennifer. All the best. It's uh, been great to chat with you. Bye bye.
0: Bye Bye-bye. Andy for joining our podcast today and for sharing his personal story with us. It's not often that educators have the opportunity to get a glimpse into the lives of one of the many academics who produce the research that shapes what we do as educators. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.